Hey friends, welcome to another episode and season 3 of the Adrian Tan Show. This is my podcast where I speak with folks that are having a great impact on what we call the future of work. Beyond just the enablers and vendors who are transforming this space, I will also be including intimate conversations with people who are navigating the future of work. They have successfully transitioned to their new careers and I hope to distill their ups and downs in this unstructured journey so that the rest of us can learn from their best practices. Hi, Jesslyn. Welcome to the show. Hello, Adrian. Thank you for inviting me. We've been trying so hard to make this work. We organized this actually way before, but then something happens. There was renovation happening in my place and it was impossible to make this work. And even today, I think there was some technical scare earlier on, which almost made it impossible. So really glad that we we're able to connect here today. Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, maybe all good things happen towards the end. So I'm glad to be on, on this podcast together with you, Adrian. You have actually gone through quite an interesting career transition. Went from HR, Combat to be specific, and has gone into financial advisory, financial management. So let's start off from the very beginning. Could you help us to understand how do you actually get into the HR space and exactly what does Com and Ben entails before we touch into what motivated you to make the switch? Okay, sure. So let me give a little background about myself. I graduated from EU as a HR bachelor in business with a minor in psychology. And I specialize in HR consulting. So back then, I think it's very, we are silo. Whatever we study, we feel that we are, we need to go into the same discipline. So I was very glad and very blessed. In fact, that when I was doing my HR internship, I was allocated to DHL. So I started with DHL as an intern. So I did a 10 weeks internship with them. And subsequently after my graduation, they got me back as an HR assistant. So back then in 2006, I don't mind sharing 2006, the internship. After the internship, the first pay that I received, I remember very fondly was 1008. So I started with 1008, whereas my peers actually were getting maybe 2.3, 2.4. But I told myself that no matter what brand name is important, I wanted to learn and get myself immersed in the DHL culture, in the HR best practices. Because back then, even now, DHL is one of the top employers. So I started to get involved in their M&A, Merger and Acquisition Activities, because in 2006 period, when I first joined them, they were undergoing massive integration work amongst the different DHL entities. And I was serving four different HR directors and the VP. So three HR directors and the VP, and I started to do regional analyst work for them. And what does Common then? Do I think it's a very interesting thing because people, when people think about HR, uh, are you doing payroll? Are you doing recruitment? Are you doing training? And what specifically is compensation benefits? So maybe I can share a little bit. I was really doing compensation benefits since day one of my job. So COMP and BAN, it stands for compensation and benefits. So when we talk about compensation, I think what is comes to mind, what comes to people's mind is definitely their salaries. Then when you talk about benefits, we talk about what is your annual leaves, what is your allowances, whether you get flexible dollars, stuff like that. But when all in all, if we look at it together, they are called total rewards. So I study that and I am the person, I was the person behind the scene working on packages for people and making sure that there is internal equity amongst employees within the company doing similar kind of jobs. We evaluate how big a job is, for example, to make it very simple to understand how much we pay an accountant versus an IT engineer. Are their job and contribution job size the same? 
how do we pay them? Should we put them in the same job grade or should we put them in different job grades? And different job grades entails different benefits. All these are actually dollars and cents in the eyes of a company. So stuff like that, it started from there and then I started to go more towards behind the scene, developing job structures for companies. In a company, if we have 1,000 employees, how many job grades should there be? Should it be a 5 broadband? Should it be a 10 or 20? So it really depends on the company's philosophy, compensation philosophy of different of the company and the industry that they are working in. So all in all, these are the little information that I can actually share insights about what compensation we really do. Imagine a lot of potential NTU graduate must be flabbergasted when you mention $1,800 only. <laughs> of course, time has changed everyone. I'm very certain it's no longer $1,800. It's a lot more right now. Now, still very much on the common event space, in your opinion, what are the kind of attributes that would make a person suitable and enjoy the com and band specialist role? I think one of the key attributes that one must have is you must be interested in numbers. It is a compensation and benefits. At the end of the day, we are looking at many spreadsheets. Back then, there were spreadsheets. Of course, now we are using systems to analyze the HR analytics and data. But at the end of the day, it's about understanding numbers and what the numbers actually, how to make the numbers tell a story. Because if today we are being, doing a junior analyst compensation benefits and not to be the ones churning the data. But at the end of the day, when we go for meetings in the senior management meetings, the senior managers and the corporate people uh, at the corporate highest level, they do not want to see numbers. They want to tell, they want us to tell, okay, Justin, what does these numbers represent? What is the story that you're trying to tell me? And if there is an issue, what is the three proposals that you have and what is your recommendation? So when it comes to attribute, I think one must be analytical and you must love numbers and Excel. And also it works, it encompasses a lot of empathy. Though we are the people behind the scene, anything and everything we do affects people. It affects people's salaries, it affects people's benefits, it affects people's feelings. So the empathy part, I think it's always there, no matter which function we are in within HR. But I like it because I feel that it actually brought a different Justin out. In the past, I can really admit to agent yourself that even when I was in NTU, I didn't know how to do Excel. I was forced into that and I didn't know how to. I think I sound stupid, but back then, all these Excel skills, I picked it up along the way with very good HR mentors who guided me to where I was eventually before I left the corporate world. Um, I find it interesting to learn from you that despite this role being very heavy, very numbers heavy, empathy actually plays a big part. It never occurred to me to see things from that perspective because to me, numbers are numbers. Uh, but having said that, of course, when you're talking about a package uh, affecting the livelihood, affecting the uh, lifestyle, the kind of commitment of the individual, it does play a big part, which is really interesting. Right now, you're in the financial space and right. of course, you can share a bit more, but I also would want to understand when did the thought actually occur to you that you want to move into it and how long did it take before you actually triggered that exit and move into this new space? Let me come back to the point about the empathy because I think what's important and that led me eventually out. That was one of the key reasons because I think HR, compensation and benefits is not just about onboarding people, giving people the salary and packages. But it comes in a cycle. When we onboard people, there are times that we have to offboard. 
And we, when you talk about off-board, it could mean involuntary terminations and retrenchments. So that's why to me, empathy was so important because every person on the list, they are just not employee IDs or numbers. It represents the likelihood of every individual employee and the package that it meant for the family. So how it actually occurred was because in the first job, I in DHL days, I was already doing M&A and that uh, inevitably included retrenchments. So from first job until the very last job, I was handling, I was managing retrenchments. So it built or sought a seed in me that perhaps job security with a, even if I'm employed with a top company, I, it may not warrant me job security. And that is a fact that I saw it through from my first job onwards as my first job. Then subsequently, because I think my performance was good and I was serving different bosses and I think it made me more astute. It made me more observant and I was able to accommodate to different bosses styles and understand how to tell stories better, present better. And that eventually led me into a regional role. And my last job was a global role that was offered to me. But having said that, in that span of 11 years, I've learned a lot. I have benefited a lot. But what actually, I paid a big price for it. When I say a big price, it meant that I compromised. I had to trade off something. We can't be a top employee and then we want to have it all, especially when back then I, just, I got married and I had two kids. I was flying quite frequently, maybe twice. I think even every two to US to me was difficult because being a breast, fully breastfeeding mother, wanting to be a hands-on mother, wanting to be the best of an employee, serving together with, let's say, the CXO people, the chiefs in the same boardroom, it took a toll on me. So eventually, long story cut short, my asthma relapsed after, tw after 20 years. The last attack was when I was doing my PSLE. Then... Subsequently, it relapsed at 32 when I realized all this took a toll on my health. And even then, I think my mental was stronger than my body. My body broke down first. Asthma relapsed at 32. And then I think it made me realize that perhaps I'm not doing something right. Because I think I was working, if I'm in US, working US time zones, and then back to the hotel after the conferences, back to the hotel in US, I'm working Singapore time zone. So I calculated at certain points, I was working 20 hours a day into account I'm trying to do FaceTime with the kids and all that so I just thought that I could handle it but then that first thing it manifested in body symptoms like asthma relapse and then the second big seed that sold was when I discovered when we realized that my daughter back then at four years old was diagnosed with a hole in her heart so the doctor actually told me that eventually we had to get prepared to have an open heart surgery from here the chest all the way down to the belly to cut it open and stitch it back when she's seven. So even then I was traveling a lot and I think it kind of, everything started to pile up. But eventually I think one of the key reasons was uh, at one point after one of my business trips, I realized my daughter, Claire, she was coughing nonstop. Before I left, she coughed. After I came back, she was still coughing. As a mother, you just sense that something was wrong and my asthma relapsed. So the two of us, went on MC together. I went to see specialists for asthma. Then Claire went to see, brought her to see PD. And the PD asked me, Claire's mommy, so what's wrong with Claire? I said, oh, doctor, I'm so concerned because Claire was coughing nonstop before and after I'm back. I'm, she's still coughing. I'm afraid she might get bronchitis. So after checking her out, you know what the PD looked at, did? He looked at me seriously in the eye and said, mommy, 
heart bronchitis, Claire has severe pneumonia. She needs to be admitted now, like now. So at that point, tears welled up, really. I felt that even if I was hosting, I was the key project lead, global lead for global compensation and benefits project, leading different HR people across the world, trying to impact on 5,000 employees. What is the use? I asked myself, you know, what? I'm not even here for my daughter, whom I carried her through my pregnancy for nine months. And I felt so that's so much mommy's guilt. And that was a breaking point, but I just couldn't find another way out. I don't know what I can do to earn back the kind of money or income that I was actually bringing back as a HR person. So eventually, I think the last role that was offered to me was a global HR director. And I can openly share, it was a quarter million package. I asked myself, what other job can I do to bring back the same income and still be here for the family and be grounded? And I, want, I don't want to travel if I don't want to. I don't want to go on business trips. Even then, back then, the company... But the company was empathetic. They knew about my situation. Even then, they would tell me, Justin, I need you back. When Claire was in having treatment, seeking treatment for pneumonia in the hospital, the company called me, hey, Justin, I need you back in US. I said, no, my daughter's in the hospital. I said, I really cannot go. All this mummy skills started to, to pile up. And I just couldn't imagine how many times can I say no. As an employee, I myself know you can't say no too many times. So that's when, you know, all these feelings piled up over the last, I think, two years, two, three years of my HR career. But I didn't actively seek out until the very, very last point in 2017, March. I remember very clearly, I went for a course, which is called a Neuro Linguistics Program, NLP. I went in without any expectations. I went in because I felt that everything that I felt was in place actually came was totally out of control. My asthma came back. My daughter's health was not good. My son, all three of us, including my ex-husband at that point, four of us were in the hospital at one point within the same month. So all of us were hospitalized within that same month. So I just felt something was wrong. Something spiraled out of our whack. So I went in wanting to seek some kind of answers. I didn't expect that during that course of the uh, nine days course, I met my current mentor. And he asked me, Jaslyn, do you have do you have you come to realize that no matter which company you move to, maybe this the real issues is you needed to resolve is your mommy's guilt. You can never get out of the rat race until you choose to. I think those were the words that he asked me that I pondered over and I asked myself, yes, to get in the corporate world. I think there are trade-offs, there are prices to pay. Are these getting, are the prices getting heftier and heavier for me to pay each time as I get a bigger role? I myself, I also, I wavered when I received the global director job, global HR director job, because if I cannot handle every two months of business travel, can I handle a global role? And the expectation was 60 to 70% out of Singapore. It was that kind of... It was a lot of dilemma because the money looked, to be honest, the package was good. But what was the price to pay? Is it equitable? Is it too much? Is it, what else do I need? What else do I want? Even if I asked myself, even if I could take on the role, 
can I sustain? If I cannot sustain, is it fair to the company? And that's why eventually I thought about it. I, I decided that I couldn't find my answers anymore in the corporate world. I decided to step out. So that is, I know it's, I'm sorry, it's a long story, but it was like a lot of things that actually, or episodes, one after another that caused me to eventually think clearer. I think I needed to find an, a thing out of the box. And perhaps the answer lies outside of corporate world. So that's why when my mentor talked to me, I decided to give it a go. I took a leap of faith and I joined him shortly after a few months in July 2017. That really gave us the understanding. And I'm very certain a lot of us can also relate to what you've been through, perhaps not in that form of intensity. I personally have been in a situation where uh, I remember there was one time and I actually have to do a TV interview. And because of that, I missed the birth of my third kid. Oh. Until today, I still feel guilty about it. And there have been also instances when I was flying back from India, back to Singapore from a business trip. And my youngest daughter cut herself. And the cut was really deep. Basically, the skirting on the floor. Yes. So her it literally hit the corner of the skirting. You can literally see the white color scar and all that. And what can I do? You can only hope that the plane fly a bit faster. <laughs> and definitely is with a heavy heart to move out of there. Quarter million, honestly, is a godsend for many people out there. Even in Singapore, where we are one of the most expensive or highest income per capita kind of country. And to really put all that away and make the leap of faith is really call for a lot of courage. But from what I understand here, the leap of faith seems to be a lot more action-driven because you only got to know your mentor for a few days during the course, <laughs> before deciding jumping into it. Was that your only consideration at that point in time? Or is there any specific aspect that really helped you think that you definitely want to get out, but you do not know what to get into? So was that the only option for you to get into? I think that's a very good question, Adrian. It happened five years ago. I can still remember very vividly all the different events. But of course, eventually when I joined, it was like a very short, sweet version. Yes, I just clicked. I realized I needed to get out and just joined in. But in fact, there was so much considerations behind the scene because you are thinking about giving up guaranteed salary to jump into something that is, as we know, sales is on commission basis, right? The first question is, what if I don't make it? What if I, I, what if I don't earn money? Your family can go into true financial issues because cash flow is an issue. Mortgages have to pay. We have to pay for kids' education, the car, the house, the bills. Every, everything was, when we talk about that, it, everything was dollar and cents. So it was really not easy for me. And besides, the funny thing I think I can share here on the podcast is that my brother is in the financial in uh, industry as well it, with a different company. So you can imagine if I were to join, naturally the first instinct is why didn't you join your brother? Why didn't my brother ask me to? And he never contemplated to invite me to join <laughs> because he felt that we were, I was not compatible to be a salesperson, which I believe so. To be honest, Adrian, I still think that I am not a true blue salesperson. If you ask me, my core is still a hard HR. I still, I'm still very HR-centric, to put it this way. But when my mentor talked to me, I realized that he was the first who opened up my mind and consider. And whether there were other options, yes. I had property real estate license back then as well. 
So it was a backup plan. I had already had the license, so I could go into property, I could go into insurance, or I could find other HR jobs. But at the end of the day, I asked myself, if I go back to corporate, nothing would have changed. I wouldn't be guaranteed of my, 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 my chair. What if one day my chair is taken away, my table is taken away? So that kind of crosses out. So if I were to go self-employed, would I make it in this industry? Honestly, I have no answer. I went in, I actually, I remember, I can share with you that I remember I signed on the Global HR Director contract. I was about to jump in. If you ask me, it was more for the income security. But after signing on the piece of dotted, on the dotted line, my heart sank for close to three days. It was just that feeling that I would say, I couldn't even describe it as a gut feel. My gut feel told me that I made a mistake because the heart just sank. Having been hit-hunted throughout my HR career in 11 years, I've been hit-hunted several times. Every single time, I feel aesthetic about it. I felt aesthetic. But this time, this one last time that I signed on it, my heart sank. I can't even describe that feeling. That's when I realized I made a mistake. I caught my mentor back. In fact, I turned him down. It wasn't as simple as, okay, I'm going to join you. No, I turned him down. I still went back to the global HR role because I felt it was guaranteed. It was a stable pay. But when my heart sank, I realized that I made a mistake. I went back to my mentor. And of course, he became the aesthetic one. I became the stress one. I discussed with my... <laughs> the feeling, the, the whole thing actually got transferred, you know, the emotions. But I discussed with my brother. So the first reaction he gave me was very discouraging. <laughs> said, it's crazy. He threw away a quarter million to join this industry and he's in the same industry. So having him said that, pouring all the, you know, cold water on me, I slept over it. I thought through and I decided that I asked myself, has Justin changed? Has Justin's brains changed? If I had been strategic in the past, being able to climb to a global HR director at the age of 33, can I repeat the success? I remember those were the words that I keep asking myself. Can I repeat the same success that if I had in HR, can I replicate it to another industry? Have I changed? Have my brains changed? No, let's do it. I know I can restart if I am determined to, if I can do it with the same grit. But of course, this time I work harder. To give you some context, I used to wake up every, five, every morning 5 a.m. consistently for three years. And to got study for insurance exams, I didn't have time to go for tutorials. Every candidate that we talked to, they'll go for tutorials three days, five days. I said, I told my mentor, no, give me the eight textbooks. I studied from five to seven every single morning. Even when I went on vacation, I brought the textbooks with me and my calendar was mapped out with the exam dates. I told myself one shot, one kill, one shot, one kill. I don't have time to fail an exam. So I think those mindset were so strong in me that I know I cannot afford to fail. And my colleagues actually asked me, Justin, are you serious? You can be an insurance agent. You studied so hard to get to where you, you got to where you are, being so successful and you want to become an insurance agent. Then I said, why not? And what if you fail, Justin? They asked me, say, what if I succeed? What if I succeed? And when during the, I think the Neuro Linguistics program also helped me so much. I think it's, instilled so much confidence and conviction in me that actually everything, whatever we wanted, is always in our control. It's whether we decided to, we have decided to succeed or not. So 
even then we had to do imagination exercise, law of attraction, visualization. I told the, I told my whole classmates of 30 people, I said, I'm going to join my mentor, Jaden. And I envisioned myself standing on the stage, flashing with the photo of myself flashing on the screen. And I am the top. I will be at the top. And people are laughing. <laughs> my classmates are laughing at me. But eventually, you know what? One third of them became my customers. Because I think even then they knew I was going to a new job. I didn't have any experience in the new industry. My new financial consultant role. They trusted me. They believed that. I think I showed so much sheer determination and grit that they believe I was succeed. And I'm so thankful for them. So now five years later, I'm now leading a team. And how my team are HR ladies. The NLP training definitely has changed the way you perceive things. And hearing your story again, I think it is really it was really a great move not to consider another HR role back then, even if it's diluted, because from what I can hear, you re are really very competitive from a career perspective. So even if you were to go into oh, just a local role, I'm very certain you will continue to put in the hours just to maybe just to re really be the forefront of competition. And again, back to the same problem. But on, on that note, I was just wondering, because in, in a sales role, whether it's property, insurance, you eat what you fish, would that would your natural competitive streak cause you to overcompensate in that manner, especially during the earlier days, which again, result in the same problem, having less time with your family? And how do you handle that? I think on that particular point, Adrian, I think I can address it very well. In my HR days, I think even until now, I would say that I am competitive, but I think whatever I do, I want to do my best. So the work ethics was always there. Whatever. I did, I promise I will over deliver. So that is what I've been taught in HR. Always under promise, but we always over deliver. So somehow that stuck with me. And competitiveness is never about with someone else. I think even from HR early days, I never wanted to compete with anyone else. It was only to be a better version of myself. To, to see that I'm growing every day. So back to your question, whether I will overcompensate, I think, this is a very relevant question. And I ask myself, how do I not repeat the same mistake? How do I make sure that this time I'm going to lead a fulfilling life and not overcompensate or have that optimal balance? So in NLP, what we learned is having life pillars that is important to us or values that's important to us, which I've mapped out six. And I can share with one of them is definitely family, career, finances, meaningful relationships, mentorship, that means I mentor people, health, learning, and all these seven, six or seven pillars, put it in a whole. I want my only goal every year is to ensure I have an optimal balance. But how do I ensure I have an optimal balance and my asthma doesn't relapse? I told myself everything became a KPI. To make sure that I spend time with the kids meaningfully, I have to make sure I block off Saturday, Sundays. I have to make sure that their spelling, their things here, I have to do it with them every week. I have to make sure that all the parents-teacher meeting, all the important kids' activities, PTMs, parent-teachers meeting, from the minute I get their school calendar, I map it into my calendar. So they become my big rocks. And for me to maintain my good health, I would go exercise two or three times a week. So I used to run 5km, waking up 5am to run 5km. So I'm very glad to share that until today, Five, this optimal balance of all these pillars, I've held it very close to my heart. And 
I will not be allow people to encroach into my time. Let's say if I set a time to do my exercise, cannot. This is my time. So all these are become my big rocks. And then the rest come and fill in. So I schedule my work around the kids first, making sure that the key important events, I will never miss it again. So I will make sure that the exercise, I will never, I will always make sure that I go for my exercise, my gym, my running, whatsoever. And uh, the good news is my asthma has not relapsed for the last five years. So I'm technically cleared because when I was diagnosed with asthma, re-diagnosed with asthma again, the doctor told me I have to take asthma pills for the rest of my life. Every single box of pills is $300. And ask myself, okay, how long can I sustain $300? I can't pay, but am I willing to relinquish myself to a box of pills for the rest of my life? I don't want. Like in Chinese, if I, do, if I can share, it's 不甘心,我真的不甘心 that how come I cannot proactively take back the control in my life. So I told myself, I will go running. I'll make sure I nurse my health back to the most optimal per- to the most optimal health condition. And if you ask me back then, now at where I am today, I can share I'm 38 years old. I'm probably healthier than 10 years ago <laughs> because there was effort and KPIs for me to look through, like to follow every single time. So that's how I do not, I make sure that I don't overcompensate in any of the pillars. It just occurred to me, if you ever consider going back to corporate, you may want to let your prospective employer know, in addition to the salary, you also need to sponsor me lifetime of asthma pill. <laughs> it makes it worthwhile for you. But just aside, going back to your calendar thing, I think I'm quite similar to you where I actually put everything into my calendar as well. In fact, I was so OCD about it last time. I even put in small little things, oh, time to walk my dog and all that. But then I realized I overdid it. But right now, I basically have this calendar entry. Okay, this time I will go to the gym, which I does every Monday to Friday. And every Friday afternoon, alternate weeks, I'll pick up this group of kids for lunch. And then the other week, another set of kids because they go to different school and all that. And I think that is the beauty of being self-employed, which of course, for me, I experienced it when during COVID, when I was still in the corporate world. But because you don't have to do commute, you don't have to dress up. A lot of things can be, your time spent commuting, your time spent dressing up, etc. could be spent on things that matter to you. All right, and more productive. Correct, yeah. So moving ahead, I've also decided, okay, screw it. I think I just want to be self-employed and (laughs) to live life on my own terms. And the the other thing that I found really interesting, because I also have friends, and I think every one of us will have friends who are insurance agents. And many of them has also reached the agency leader or manager level. And a common theme across all of them, even for those who do not know each other, is hiring is always very painful. I cannot find people in my team and all that. But you mentioned something very interesting. A huge majority of your team are actually HR people. Was it intentional? Was it deliberate? Or is it just something that happens along the way? When I joined the industry, perhaps my... HR attributes were so exceptionally strong that it brought me people to believe in me, like clients to believe in me. And that led me to accelerate my success very quickly. So by 2018, I was in top credential. I was, yeah, in terms of sum assured, I protected the highest amount of sum assured for clients, number one. So I think as on and off, when I'm sharing all these happy events online, on LinkedIn especially, it connected me with more and more people. And within them, of course, we have HR connections because I was HR professional back then. So one of them, her name is Mabel. She was my ex-DHL colleague, but we work in different entities. 
and she approached me, hey, Jaslyn, do you want to look at, take over my company's account for benefits? Because I also do corporate benefits for companies. So we met and then she told me, Jaslyn, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I want to go on a HR course. I said, hey, Mabel, why don't you consider joining this industry? So then, then for she joined me subsequently. And then the other HR person that I have on board is my own sister. She was from formerly HR, formerly Command Band also. So before she came in to join me last year, she recommended her close friends and ex-colleagues to join me already. So I guess it was the kind of trust that they had, an implicit trust or explicit trust, you call it, that they had in me to believe that I was able to still uphold this profession to the highest ethical manner, higher standards. To me, that is most important because what we are trying to do, we are still HR people by call, the call of our heart. But we, whatever, now the topics that we talk, of course, we talk about a bigger, we talk about bigger things. We are no longer just focusing on one employee's welfare. We are looking at employee, that particular person and the family members behind them. So I think the empathy part drew, attracted them to join me because they realized that they're in a way doing HR work, but in a more meaningful, purposeful manner. I'm not saying HR is not good. Don't get me wrong. But if they had a choice and they wanted to do something else outside of corporate, this is one of the industry that they realized they made a lot of impact to customers or to the employees because we are predicting family tragedies. For people who may also be looking into or have been sitting on the fence for the longest time in considering such a career path. But prior to, of course, understanding what kind of attributes, again, the kind of things that may appeal to people, could you describe your typical working day right now as an advisor and also as an agency leader? Yes. Now I'm an agency leader to six other financial consultants. So my day, typically, it's a Monday to Friday. So I'm working the real weekdays kind of hours. With weekends, I put it aside. And not weekends, I don't touch them unless I have specific customers who really tell me weekdays they cannot make it. Then we'll do Zoom or on and off. I could do one or two face meetings. But this becomes a bit, it's a bit rarer nowadays. So then my typical day starts at maybe 6 a.m. I send, I get the kids ready for school, change them, bring them to their school buses. Then after that, I'll go to gym at 7.30. So I'll report to the gym. I'll do my workout and then after that, I will go to, I'll have my first meetings about 8.30 or 9, depending on my schedule, 8.30 or 9. And then typically back-to-back meetings all the way until probably 7, 8 p.m. And then I put the kids to bed at about 9. Then I continue my day, not really working, but I carved out time after they go to sleep. I told myself I wanted to study. Remember one of my pillars was actually self-development. So I told myself I wanted to actually spend a bit more time on that. So after they go to bed, I do my self-study on Chartered Financial Consultant papers, self-study, which I wanted to make my life or time more productive. So all in all, I'm probably working about, including study, probably 14, 16 hours a day. And then I typically go to bed about 11 or 12. Cross all career transition, there will always be some milestones which are not so positive. Are there any specific pitfalls, some negative milestones that people may be keen to also understand to better prepare themselves when they decide to make the move or the pivot into financial advisory. I think this applies to self-employed firstly, maybe not just insurance. When we become self-employed, the first thing that we think of, I'm sure agent, you can empathize with that is next month, you no longer see the fixed pay going deep, the salary deposited into your bank account. 
there's no longer fixed salary. We have to say goodbye to that. But on the flip side, though there's no fixed salary, it means no cap. It means that you have the ability to control and within your own hands and power how much you want to earn. So this is something that when people ask me that, just I no longer see guaranteed pay, but I said, what if you are going to make more than that? Are you happy to just limit yourself to that ceiling? And that ceiling is created not by you, but it's by the company and the budget. Yeah, so that is one of the things that, you know, when I first stepped out, that was one of the biggest fears. The more salary and what if when we become self-employed, it can be a very lonely journey because you see your friends, family members going to work. And then suddenly, the schedule that you thought you had, it all disappeared. It all vanished because we're supposed to report to work, let's say, 8.30 in the morning. And then you end work at about 5.36. Everything you're supposed to do, it seems like very, it's very tight-fitted. You log into the system, then you do firefighting on emails, then you have your project discussion. Suddenly, you don't have any structure. So that is the second thing that I see one of the pitfalls for many self-employed. They suddenly become too free. I don't know what to do my <laughs> I don't have any structure. Then where's the SOP? Where is your SOP to do this and that? Take away all this. There's no longer as. And who are we today? The third thing that I always want to highlight is we come in to be self-employed. It means we are our own boss. But it doesn't mean that we can take advantage of our unlimited time to do the things that we just want to do and, and not focusing on activities that help you bring in the income. You cannot be too bogged down with admin work and then you don't start looking for activities that help you do your sales or prospecting whatsoever. So I say this in a large funnel because I know this is generally one of the most pitfalls that self-employed typically encounter. So they don't know how, uh, there's no discipline. They suddenly don't know how to be disciplined because I realize many people, like we say 80-20, 80% of people need structure. They just don't know what to do. Like when I have, I don't have a timetable or schedule for you, no deliverables, you don't, you cannot function or you don't know what to do. So that becomes something that people have to get used to. Whatever we are so used to, laptops, some of them, I have seen people that who after leaving the corporate world, they return their laptops. They realize they don't even have a personal laptop. <laughs> yes. So I've seen that happen. So. I think these are little things that transitions that we have to actually get over first. Teething issues. I would say these are teething issues. We have to do something big. We have to be courageous and overcome these little things. But coming to the second part, to be more specific on it, let's say we talk about financial industry. What is our job about? And I would always say we are well remunerated, fairly remunerated because nobody likes to talk about insurance. You talk about insurance, people think we are salesmen. You talk about insurance, I, you, want to, you want to earn my commission and you want to sell me a product and then after that, you disappear. That is a common myth among, I wouldn't say a common myth, it happens and there is some truth to that. But I'm, am I saying all are like that? No. I'm certainly not like that, but I know that is the stereotypical impression of agents and there are people who have been doing that, are doing that still. Yes. So when it talk about that, why are we fairly remunerated? Because we are here, as I was talking to my clients yesterday also, I said we are fairly remunerated only because this is a taboo topic. Nobody likes to talk. But yet, we care for you because we are HR people. I care for you first. 
ahead of anything else. Like yesterday, I can share this incident. I was talking to this single mother. She has a nine-year-old son. So she thought that I want to sell her a savings or endowment product. I said, no. I said, Miss T, my job today, can I ask you a few questions? I'm not going to share with you any product. My job, my number one job is to ask you, Miss T, can I ask you if today you and I walk out from this restaurant and we never go back, we never come back, what is your biggest concern? You said, my son. Say yes. How is your son going to survive? She said, I don't know. I said, exactly. That's why I am here. Because nobody likes to talk about such things. But my job is to make you alert and be aware of the pitfalls. That it's a very, it's a, it's like HR job, thankless job. When HR people do a good job, oh, okay, by default, you should do it. When we make a mistake, ayah, when you miss a decimal point or you miss two cents from my payroll. So it's the same thing. I see that there's a lot of similarities, but though we may not be a, as highly appreciated, but when we do the right thing, our clients, my clients have always thanked me, Justin, I'm so grateful that at the right time, I met you. I say, thank you very much for your compliment. And you are indeed, to be honest, I'm not shameful to say you are indeed very lucky to have met me because not all financial consultants operate like us where we don't talk about, I'm not thinking about commission. Number one, I think about, I told my single mom client, Miss T, I said, my number one concern is your son. I must make sure today, Miss T, whether you are still around or not, your son continues to live on with the same living standard. I want to make sure that he sees through, you see him through university, whether today you are still alive or not. Well, that's how, you know, these conversations like that, it's not going to be easy because people may not like it, but we have to see in the, palatable manner where people can accept and embrace and feel that you are doing good things for them. And did I make a sale? I did. But she gave me very good comments. You know, Jason was able to think for me, stuff like that. And I'm glad that I am also compensated for my work and my service. So all the tough questions that people really need to be asked and also to internalize, especially in our society where I read reports, large percentage of the working population has no retirement plans or no retirement savings, et cetera, because we never bother asking all these tough questions. And even for my wife, I constantly have to remind her, hey, retirement, how are you? No, we are not exactly savings. We're not exactly on track with our savings, et cetera. So I do think these are beneficial questions as much as they may be painful. But I think as the saying goes, the truth will set you free, but it will piss you off first. And my job is to ask questions that cause you not to be able to sleep well at night. But because if I can make you not sleep well at night for one night, I can create a very peaceful mind for you for the rest of your life. And that's my job. So like what you say, aptly described by you, Adrian, my job is to ask questions that's very tough, but important for people to suddenly wake up from their daily jobs to say, okay, I think I have not done enough for retirement. I've not done enough for my kids. I've not done enough for my, if I'm single, I've not done enough for my surviving parents who brought me up and I've never planned for them. What's going to happen when I'm not no longer around? And I think that was one of the reasons why that Prudential's ex-CEO, this public info, he became my client. We together with his family, out of 5,000 financial consultants, he chose me to be his financial consultant, knowing that because maybe I, I came from a HR compensation and benefits background. For people who will be keen to learn more and also to be part of this journey, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you and reach out to you? You can find me on LinkedIn, Jocelyn Ng. 
G-A-S-L-Y-N. But if you cannot remember, Google me. I think my, my SEO, I don't know. I think because I've been posting so much, usually it appears on the first on the Google search, Justin Ng. And on IG, it's Justin, uh, What Life Integration. Awesome. Great. All this will be added into the show notes. Jaslyn, thank you so much for having this conversation. I really enjoy myself and to learn your heartwarming stories of where you were before to what you're doing today. I'm very certain whoever would be keen to reach out to you will also be able to learn a lot from you and potentially for you to become the, their version of the mentor that you met at the NLP program. And with thank that, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adrian. Nice speaking with you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to more information about our guests and their businesses. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be helpful to give a review on iTunes or follow me on Spotify. If you are using Overcast, please hit the star button under the episode. That will help get this episode and podcast out to more people who may find it useful. I'll see you in the next episode of The Agent Han Show.